Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The band Gang of Four formed in the British city of Leeds in the late 70s. They were contemporaries of other post-punk bands from that era, like Joy Division, Wire, and The Fall. Maybe you've heard of Gang of Four, maybe you haven't. Either way, it won't surprise you when I say that Gang of Four influenced a lot of rock bands. That just kind of goes with the territory of being a successful post-punk band, which Gang of Four is. They were abrasive, danceable, and unapologetically political. What's unique about Gang of Four, though, is the sheer breadth of their influence. You'll hear that influence in indie bands like Liars and Block Party, but also in the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nirvana and R.E.M., And you'll hear Gang of Four songs sampled in the music of Moby or Frank Ocean or even on the new Run the Jewels. Gang of Four carried on in a handful of iterations, but the core of the band remained more or less the same. Guitarist Andy Gill and vocalist John King. Gang of Four never really disbanded until last year when Gill died suddenly at 64 of pneumonia and organ failure. His widow suggested he may have been an early victim of the COVID-19 pandemic. This year, the indie label Matador Records is reissuing the work of Gang of Four. Gang of Four 77 through 81 is a four-record box set that revisits and elevates some of the band's most important releases, including their debut, Entertainment. Ahead of release, my friend Jordan Morris sat down with the singer John King to talk about the band, its legacy, and what it was like playing danceable music at punk rock shows. Here's another Gang of Four classic, Damaged Goods. John King, welcome to Bullseye. Hi. So Gang of Four gets categorized as a punk band or a post-punk band, but there's so much going on in the music. It is such a it is such a rich, hearty soup. There is, you know, R&B, there is funk, there is dance music, there's disco. Um, I want to hear about the music you were listening to around the time the band got started. Um, uh, Annie and I had quite similar tastes uh, we'd known each other since we were young teenagers and uh at the beginning uh, we we uh, deified Jimi hendrix so uh, Jimi hendrix was an enduring love i mean even now i play voodoo child slight return probably every week which <laughs> i played my entire life so electric ladyland was kind of like the template for it and uh, actually when uh, Jimi died andy wore a black armband to school because uh, we went to the same uh, school together, um, so th- there was uh, there was Hendrix to start off with, and um, uh, the other uh, outfit that 
I absolutely adored was was the band and and their songs of American life and and uh, Bob Dylan, of course. But along with that was this you know, really strong love of reggae and funk, and uh, so uh, the sorts of uh, everything by James Brown, uh, Electric Blues, Muddy Waters. Um, in fact, when we started off, we used to do uh, uh, a couple of Muddy Waters covers, uh, and uh, not very well, but uh, that was uh, something that was really inspirational. So so uh, African-American music was really, really important, and we loved dancing. So we always – and reggae in particular, I, I don't think it happened in the – in the US in the way that it did in, um, in Britain. But, uh, one of the records that was played to death by both me and Andy and Hugo and Dave was the Trojan story. Oh yeah. absolutely. Uh, 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 which was sensational. And all those uh, tracks by bands like Scatterlights and Dave and Ansel Collins. And so reggae music was really important and, and, um, you know, it was inspirational, but of course, when you're a, uh, a bunch of white guys. You don't want to be in, in uh, uh, ripping off someone else's tradition, but you want to learn from it and and be inspired by it. Like, like more or less every single British musician has ever since. They just they listen to blues records, like Led Zeppelin did, and <laughs> uh, and, and make a record that's kind of de- de- developed from that. Or Hugo, his great love was uh, Free, and and we all shared a, a common love of uh, the drumming of Simon Kirk. And of course, the spare guitar work, you know, that was um, that was there. So, so it was a sort of James Brown funk reggae, and the the other uh, band that I think more than any other band inspired us at the beginning was Doctor Feelgood, and uh, oh, wow. uh, Doctor Feelgood was this uh, stripped down, dry bunch of. Uh, drunks from Canvey Island. I mean, I'm being unkind a bit, but you know, that, that Wilco Johnson was the, the model for Andy's guitar playing and, and for a while. And Lee Brillo, who was this singer, you know, was, was someone I admired hugely. So we liked all that stuff. And I'm curious about the term post-punk, which a lot of people use when they talk about Gang of Four. Do you remember when you first heard that? And do you feel like it's a good way to describe the band? <sighs> I'm not. I think with all of these labels, it, uh, there's a conundrum. I'm, you know, we all want to find some way of clumping stuff together, but they are always applied after the event. I mean, when I think it, it is true that you can see uh, sort of mental affinities between sort of a band like us and New Order and Public Image uh, as as operating in sometimes in the same sort of vocabulary, musical vocabulary. But I mean, when uh, the, the music that actually inspired me and to get going and form a band was uh, the New York bands, which were certainly not post-punk bands, you know, cause we went out in 76 and we were going to CBGB's every night and it was bands like Richard Taylor and the Voidoids, you know, and, and television and uh, uh, early talking heads and the like and so i don't know that it's necessary i don't know how useful it is um but i can see why people do it if that's a good answer or not no no it's it's a it's a it's a great answer it's one of those things where it's like it's not perfect but you know sometimes you need words like that to talk about music so 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I am. Um, we had um, formed very strong friendships with um, Pylon and uh, REM, who were our support bands for quite a while out of Athens in Georgia. Uh, and you know, there's certain places you go to where you feel an affinity, you know, and felt an affinity to Athens at that time. Yeah, there seemed, and the B52s were from there. You, f- you had a, an idea that there was a, a creative energy. One of my favorite, also favorite bands were the Ramones. I loved the Ramones. I saw them loads of times. And I loved, I loved the feel goods. But what I didn't really like is chords. I didn't really like. Actually, it was, it was um, the Ramones. Of course, sounded like the Beatles with uh, you know that grungy stuff underneath it. And right. um, uh, years later, you know, you think of bands like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, who sort of picked up on that on that vibe. Sure. And but the Sex Pistols music was really exciting at the time but it's really conservative i mean it's it's black sabbath with challenging <laughs> lyrics but yeah the, uh, uh, pretty vacant is really a sabbath song speeded up and uh, with those lyrics so when your band was starting out england was going through some really tough economic times did that situation affect what you were doing in the band in any way it's um, it's not an original thought to say that the best art is made when things are really bad. Uh, I, I've there's um, a film called The Third Man, which is uh, made in 1948, and it's Orson Welles is one his one of his great movies, and he plays a uh, someone who sells adulterated or, or fraudulent drugs, uh, penicillin, uh, to the people, and at the top of a of a reel and they have this he has a show face to face with the police officer or the, the military guy who's uh, uh go, wants to arrest him or, or execute him and he says he says uh italy through the renaissance is war famine death poisoning betrayal the result leonardo da vinci michelangelo Raphael, and then he says switzerland 400 years of peace what do you get the cuckoo clock <laughs> and uh, so I think we were lucky enough to live in the former. Uh, it, it wasn't lucky. I mean, Leeds was a, Leeds was really, really bad. Britain was really bad. I um, at the beginning of the um, the boxer, I, I wrote a little kind of introductory one page essay about if you went to the centre of London, Leicester Square, there was uh, garbage piled, you know, fourteen, fifteen feet high. Uh, there were they the uh, gravediggers had gone on strike. And so they were, they had run out of uh, places to store the corpses. So they were renting um, uh, refrigerated trucks to store stacks of corpses. Um, uh, animals were starving on the farms. There was one in four adult males was out of work. I mean, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. And I think because I and we wanted to write about the world that we lived in then, it didn't seem to me to be an interesting subject to write songs about girls and cars. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting when, you know, you do hear the Gang of Four takes on the love song at that time. I'm thinking about uh, Love Like Anthrax specifically. And, you know, that being such an anti-dark Love song. Love 
It is interesting how you you guys were, uh, you know, taking some of this familiar stuff and putting it through the lens of what you saw going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, something I put in the book was a great quote from Bertolt Brecht. He said, uh, how can you write songs about trees when the woods are full of policemen? <laughs> and it's, you know, those, the, those subjects were really real to us all you know sometimes uh like songs like natural's not in it you know you're you're sitting there thinking how did i end up like this i i feel actually i having having done um at home as a tourist i remember about a year after that talking heads came out with that one you know you may find yourself in a beautiful house <laughs> which is a which is right. that 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 subject you know that you're you suddenly get this moment of existential strangeness you think how on earth did i get here you know how did, did it, was it was it going through that door or another door you know uh, how on earth did my life end up it's this series of random events and yet you are wherever you are and it, and it and it's um quite can be quite disconcerting you wonder whether you're um uh, an actor in in some cosmic play in which you've actually just been reading your lines from the word go. And it's, it's a sort of, it can be a disturbing moment for lots of people when they get that. We'll finish up with John King of Gang of Four after a quick break. We'll talk about what it's like to hear your band sampled by Frank Ocean and Run the Jewels. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. On NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we talk about TV, movies, and more, like the new Marvel Disney Plus series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and a definitive ranking of the best Muppets. All of that in around 20 minutes every weekday. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Hey, it's John Moe. And look, these are challenging times for our mental and emotional health. I get it. That's why I'm so excited for my new podcast, Depression Mode. We're tackling depression, anxiety, trauma, stress, the kinds of things that are just super common but don't get talked about nearly enough. Conversations that are illuminating, honest, and sometimes pretty funny with folks like Patton Oswalt, Kelsey Dara, and Open Mike Eagle. I have this public-facing self, and then I have my emotional self that tends to stay hidden. It was about finding a way to communicate to somebody that, like, there's terrible sh going on back here. Plus psychiatrists, psychologists, and all kinds of folks. On Depression Mode, we're working together, learning, helping each other out. We're a team. Join our team. Depression Mode from Maximum Fun, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, our guest is John King. He was the lead singer of the hugely influential post-punk band Gang of Four. He's being interviewed by Maximum Fun's Jordan Morris. The band just released a box set looking back at some of Gang of Four's earliest recordings, including their 1979 debut, Entertainment. Let's get back into it. Something interesting about Gang of Four's music is that you know, you have these danceable beats and you have these great melodies, but also it's just there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise and, mm. you know, the rhythms kind of like break down and put themselves back together. And they, you know, they kind of hit you in a way that you don't expect. Um, I want to talk about that, that 
dissonance that's in some of the songs and why you thought it was important to have that in the music. Andy was a brilliant, brilliant guitarist and he was a brilliant non-technical guitarist. And so he had this fantastic ability to tease a sound out of some steel strings. And just like, you know, if you ever listen, everyone's listened to it, but you listen to, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, document of, of rock and roll is, you know, Robert Johnson's recordings of the late 1920s. You can hear the strings. You can hear the scraping. You can almost hear the touch of his fingers on the, on the stuff. You've got a physicality about it. And some of those noises are so gorgeous, you know, like on the great underground tracks, you know, on, on the VU or, or underground meets Nico trying to find noises that sound like the end of the world. And to do that was, you know, Andy's genius on the guitar was to pull out those noises, which start off somewhere between Jimi Hendrix and Wilco Johnson and end up this other, this other place, but to make things that have got that, that distance. And again, think of band things. Sometimes we say we want a song without any key changes. And there are no chord progressions in quite a lot of the songs. And so what you needed was this incredibly propulsive and powerful rhythm section. So Dave and Hugo would come up. Um, I think a good example of that is um, uh, What We All Want. Dave was, he'd learned to play the bass by listening to the Meters, you know, the, the, you know one of the world's greatest ever bands, you know. <laughs> he, yeah. he went, I think when I first, not the first time I met him, but pretty soon, I remember he and I getting so excited about listening to Sissy Strutt over and over again uh, mm-hmm. uh, by the Meters. And he, he, that's how he'd learned it, from listening to Sissy Strutt and reggae. And, but there was also this sound of can, you know, the, the German uh, noise band. So, and that used to be that uh, in that kind of kraut rock thing of that sort of propulsive driving on thing. And so he played this funky stuff because he used to be, and of course, in a covers band, you know, where which played you know R and B and country and western and stuff. And it was applying what Dave and Hugo were able, brilliant, applying the aesthetic of funk, where you you get a groove and you lay it down, and you got to stick with it. You got to be on the one. And then you you're with the one, and then then when you go away from the one, it's a thrill. And uh, you know, like like Henry James, the master himself, James Brown. But where James Brown was all about the one, we started being about where you went when the one was there. And so Andy would then improvise like mad over this screwed down, bam 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 would be popping along, and then Andy would like be we careening around the place, knowing that you could always come back to the one. And that's when the dissonance works. Because if, if, if it's just 
if everything's dissonant, it doesn't work. So I, 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 I used to listen to quite a lot of uh, jazz music and I could never really get on with free jazz too much because it was, it was actually too much being dissonant against each other. Uh, you know, um, a failing in, of mine, not of the art form. But so the dissonance is really thrilling. If it's thrilling, if you got a one, or it's thrilling if you got a four, even. But it's not thrilling if it's all a mess. You know. I heard the Gang of Four was invited to play on Top of the Pops, which uh, at the time was a you know huge TV show that really drove record sales. And I think the story goes that you guys walked off. I would love to hear that story and, you know, if there were repercussions down the line. Top of the Pops was certainly in Europe the most influential TV show there's ever been. I mean, you if you got onto that show, you were going to have a top 10 single. And they had very strange rules that you got on – this was to avoid payola and bribery and corruption – you got on the show if if you had a single that had gone into the top 30 and you therefore you had to be offered a slot. If you're going down the charts, you weren't on the show. The only person that could stay on the show if they were in the same position was number one. Everyone else, if you were stayed in the same position or you went down, you weren't on the show. So we had released the incredible um, uh, pop classic of Home is a Tourist. We're talking about dissonance. To right. the uh, to the amazement of EMI, it had got into the top thirty. Uh, this 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 record that sounds like someone's at a, a, a train derailing in Grand Central Station. Uh, you know, it's wonderful guitar row at the beginning, which is fantastic, and uh, and following those rules of the screwed down rhythm section and the guitar going off on its holidays. And um, the program used to go out at like I think seven thirty or eight o'clock at night. Basically, anything goes after nine o'clock. That's when you hear the C word and the F word and all that kind of stuff. There are no limits really to what happens there anymore on TV. But up until that point, it's the watershed. Up to that point, you've got to be kind of delicate and you can't use you know, profane language and stuff. And the lyric on the chorus was, the rubbers you hide in your top left pocket. Because it was, It's not a very uh, challenging idea that people go to clubs and music halls to get laid. And if they do, <laughs> uh, if they do, uh, having a, a condom in your pocket is quite useful and quite socially responsible. Anyway, so I, I chucked this in because it was all about the commercialization of people's sex lives. I, t- I tossed in the, the uh, American slang because British people didn't use the word rubbers. They used the word Johnny's at that time. So rubbers was not was not a British slang word. It's a bit like in the olden days when um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was on. They would always use British slang like like bollocks because they thought Americans didn't know what it meant. Yeah, uh-huh. I remember when I first came to America, they'd go, what, what are you saying? Um, so <laughs> the so that lyric, we were in the charts. We had to be given a slot. The BBC said, "You've got the slot." But there's a there's a rule, which was the musicians' union said you have to re-record the song that you're on the charts to comply with the musicians' union. So you have to go into the studio and re-record the track that's in the charts. But they said you've got to re-record it. But we don't like the word rubbers. You've got to sing it differently. So we had a bit of a discussion about this, and, and I think we all agreed that the opportunity is too big. Okay, let's let's change the word. 
So we we re-recorded the track. In fact, we didn't re-record the track. We just re-recorded the word packets. So I dropped in the word packets over the original thing and then handed it over. Went into the studio and the the producers were going nuts. The producer said, we asked you to change the word. And I, and I said, yeah, I have changed the word. It's, it's Now it's the packets you hide in your top left pocket. And they said, we can't say that because it still means the same. And and I, and I said, I said, yeah, it does mean the same. And said, but the other thing is, you can hear that you've changed the word. We would like you to, to have used the word rubbish. <laughs> so we had a very heated argument in which language was used that you wouldn't use before the watershed. So we really, we, uh, and we had a big. And we told them, we we told them, you know, really pretty un, uh, much where to go, where to go, and um, we were thrown off the show, and the record was banned. And uh, wow. that was that first uh, of our records to be banned, to be followed years later by I Love a Man in a Uniform, which was banned, of course, in the UK. Why was that song banned? That's much later. That was on Songs of the Free. And that was banned because having written this song called I Love a Man in a Uniform, which is you know, uh, much more of a pop song than uh, before, the written before, but it was about you know, a guy whose life choices were so limited from a working class background, he had no choice but to, to get, get into uniform. So, and the chorus was I Love a Man in a Uniform. And it was it was uh, uh, it's quite sexy and it was quite cool and all that stuff. But the uh, and it was being played a lot in, on the radio in the UK until an event happened that was so you know uh, uh, left field, uh, which was the uh, Argentinian government invaded the Falkland Islands, Las Malvinas, and a, a, a place that I'd never even heard of. And because it mentioned a uniform, the sensitivity and the censorship was so strong. Um, we we, we were, um, went to do a TV show and uh, we turned up and um, the producer, t- to promote this thing, which was charting, and the producer said, um, oh, well, you know you were, you were going to play uniform. Well, we'd, you can play anything you like from your oeuvre, but you can't play that. And he said, well, we're here to promote that because in the chart. He said, well, we can't because – We've heard that our boys are going into the uh, to invade the island to retake uh, the Falklands, and uh, it was taken off the radio. It was banned because it mentioned a uniform. We are talking because there is a, a new Gang of Four uh, box set that uh, collects some of your earliest recordings. Um, are you someone who revisits that old music regularly, or you know, was doing it for this box set something that you know you wouldn't normally do? Yeah, I, I don't. I think like lots of musicians, I don't really like listening to my old things at all. Um, and um, it was good to listen to, but I don't like to listen to it very much. No, but it reminds me of all of the things, and it imp- I was impressed by uh, the rigor of of it all, and it reminded me so much of what we were doing. And the, the main th- exp- uh, sensation I had emotionally was 
how close we all were as a unit. You know, we were, we were all incredibly good friends. We made each other uh, uh, do the best work that we could. And uh, we also made each other laugh. I think one of the uh, key things about the um, the photographs and there's how many of them show the four of us clearly entertaining each other and enjoying it. But the, the, the music of that period that I still like to listen to, I, I love listening to the slits, for example, uh, like typical girls. I prefer to listen to, to what they were doing to what we were doing. Cause I don't want to, you know, listening to your own work is a bit strange. I think. It's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, how close you were and what a unit you were. Um, and that makes me want to hear your thoughts um, about Andy. Obviously, Andy passed away this year, and I just want to hear a little bit about him from you. Um, what what will you always remember about him? Uh, well, our lives were very uh, social, and working lives were very interwoven. I mean, I'd I'd been friends of his since I was like fifteen. Now, actually, my wife. I'd known him since she was 11. He, he used to go around to her house at the age of 11 and play chess with her older brother. Uh, so uh, when and we were at the same high school together, I mean, we went to a school between the age of 11 and 18 called Seven Oaks School, and, and, and we all were – the group that we were in were all keen on art. And there was me and Andy, and there were three other people, Kevin Lysett, Mark White, and Tom Greenhouse, who formed the Mekons – all in the same class, and Paul Greengrass, the movie director, uh, and oh, Adam wow. Kurt- and Adam Curtis, the documentary filmmaker, were all in the same class. And uh, so, I went off to Leeds with Kevin because I was in a year above Andy, and then Andy went up, and then he and I had flats next door to each other uh, in this horrible house, you know, rented house, like classic student squalor. And he had an acoustic guitar. And I had a cassette recorder, and he's, we used to sit there drinking cheap wine, and and writing genre songs really t- for a, for a while, and then and then together when I got a research grant to go to New York, Andy came along, and we then stayed together with uh, we crashed with Mary Harron, who was then a journalist on the New York Punk magazine, but later on she directed American Psycho and uh, uh, the the notorious Betty Page. But Mary had just um, broken up, I think, with the drummer of the Patti Smith group, who was then unknown, and she had a flat in St. Mark's Place in in New York. And um, so we used to go to CBGB's every night. We got in for nothing. So we hung out. So Andy and I hung out with Richard Hale and, and the Voidoids and and the, the 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 dead boys and all that lot talking heads and blondie and everyone you know who are all in this crappy bar and um so when we came back it was so our lives had become sort of baked they become baked together so we just we were very kind of entertainingly chalk and cheese you know <laughs> and, and um you know i'm a terrible terrible guitarist but i you know, like, love playing words you know so it was we we traded off each other, you know, and um, we we could do what the other one couldn't do, and it was it was it was very um, uh, good. And I think we made each other laugh. I mean, uh, you know, we we laughed a lot, and we knew all of the words to all of the band songs. So very often we'd be singing, you know, up on Cripple Creek uh, together <laughs> as a sort of as a duet and things like that. Yeah. 
Gang of Four music has been uh, sampled by some pretty serious hip hop artists. Um, I'm thinking of Run the Jewels and Frank Ocean specifically. Um, what is it like to hear your music used like that? I I was so flattered, really, for both of them to use it. I mean, I think that um, Run the Jewels is a, a, a brilliant band, and and I, I I liked them before they did that. I mean, I actually thought it was a joke when. I was someone said you would they ask for permission i i think um uh it would david run into one one of them in the uh, in the studio in the west coast and uh they said oh, do you mind if we sample your song uh ether and of course uh, no of course he didn't mind and and i think it and when frank ocean did that you, i i felt um i felt i felt very uh, musically pleased because of course you're always standing on the shoulders of giants you know so just as just as we would sort of like uh heist something or other from funkadelic i'm not sure sure what it was but you'd 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 you'd, you'd, you'd be inspired by something that you hear uh, uh and then to think that a, a band that's also like run the jewels trying to take on the com- complicatedness of uh urban life um uh and you know, hip hop has has got a fantastic thread to it of talking about real life in in those ways. And I was so thrilled that someone like Ether, which is all about that, trapped in heaven lifestyle, locked in long cash. You know, so it's you know I think I mentioned earlier on the two opposing ideas. There was the interpret policy of innocent people, and then there's your own sort of feeling that you are your own jailer in your own home. You know, and. Uh, uh, which is quite a sort of proto hip hop kind of idea, isn't it? I suppose. I don't know. John King, thanks so much for talking to us on Bullseye. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. John King, lead singer of Gang of Four. Gang of Four, 77 through 81, is a box set with live recordings and reissues of their brilliant records, Entertainment and Solid Gold. You can order the box set from your local record store. Thanks to my friend Jordan Morris for conducting this interview. Jordan also co-hosts the comedy show Jordan, Jesse, Go with me. I'm the Jordan from the title. He's the Go. Jordan also created Max Fun's scripted sci-fi podcast, Bubble, which you can download now and is now a graphic novel. You can pre-order it at your local bookstore. That's it for another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles. Here in my house, I've accepted that I'm an extra large now and am going through my clothes, getting rid of the larges. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien as well. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for sharing it. The Go Team have a record just around the corner. There's a single up 
right now. You should uh, search for The Go Team on YouTube or whatever and uh, give it a listen. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews in those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.